You are listening to the Enormo Cast. When it comes to Sportiva, I often praise the longevity of their venerated classics like the Mira. Because, well, if it ain't Baroque, don't fix it. Italian Baroque, that is. But as we know, I'm a stick in the mud whose glory days are well behind him. But you, dear listener, still have your best days waiting to jump out at you like a puppy wearing a backpack full of caramel corn. So hey, forward thinkers, let's take a gander at what's new over at Sportiva.com. The redesigned Cantana Lace is an absolute edging machine. The updated Tarantula line provides comfort and performance at a price point for everybody. The TX2 Evo adds even more performance to Sportiva's stow-and-go approach shoes. And the new Mantra is a minimalist slipper so light and flowy You'll swear you accidentally showed up to the gym in only your underwear. Just like in that dream you had last night. Don't worry, I just looked down too. So when it comes to keeping you thinking ahead, Sportiva is there with innovation at every turn. Why not see what's up and head over to Sportiva.com or follow them on Instagram. And remember, Sportiva is a proud sponsor of the EnormaCast. Does your neck hurt playing someone else's project? Does your partner get in way over his head even on the warm-ups? Does the phrase, I'll just do this move one more time, make your eyeballs spin? Then let Belay Specs fight for you. When my boyfriend started falling lower and lower on his project, Belay Specs saved my neck and got me a new boyfriend. Belayer neck pain, also known as BNP, can interfere with work, play, family, and snapping your head around at the gym to check out those abs. And you have rights, which are being crushed every time your partner yells take. So if your neck has been injured in an epic belay session, go to belayspecs.com to see if you qualify for a pair of belay specs and to get what you deserve. Entry Normacast at checkout for a discount. Belay specs is not licensed to give legal advice to anyone. Results may vary by steepness. If belay specs cause you to trip, fall down, run into a door, nausea, dry mouth, you're probably too high to climb to begin with. All right, we good? We done here? Does anybody want to get a beer? We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing it at? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, out. Out That's a big nice. place. You sold it out. I'll see. You really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, La Sportiva, and with support from Maxim Ropes. Maxim has been keeping the normal cast off the deck since 2012. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Norma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Normacast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Normal Cast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is around noon, a nooner on the 9th of June, 2022, and this is episode 243 of the Normal Cast, a conversation with climber guide Miranda Oakley. Have you heard of Miranda Oakley? I had not until her name came up in a conversation actually about rock climbing in Pakistan. 
but more in connection with her rock climbing in Palestine. But as soon as I started asking around about Miranda Oakley, everyone I talked to was like, oh yeah, Miranda Oakley, she's awesome. I love Miranda Oakley. Miranda Oakley kicks ass. So yeah, I was kind of in the dark about Miranda Oakley. And if you're in the dark about Miranda Oakley, that's about to change. Anyhow, I have a quick bit of business slash request. And this is going to be very specific and hopefully of the uh, however many listeners hit this thing in the next couple weeks, somebody will go, huh, maybe I do. I am looking for a photo or two photos or a few photos of a guy named Mike Borquet. Anybody remember Mike Borquet? Mike Borquet, also known as Handsome Mike. I am looking for some pictures of Mike. So if you have any archived photos of Mike, he hung out in Yosemite, in the desert. I think he hung out in Waco a lot. He hung out in Gunnison, where I knew him best. And maybe by this conversation, you can tell that he has since passed away, which I won't go into the details of that. But um, I want to include him in a uh, presentation that I'm going to do. So I'm having trouble picking up pictures of him. Not much on the internet, not much of high quality anyway. So any of you guys, any of you guys have a Mike Borquet picture, please get in touch. Chris at enormacast.com or uh, through the Instagram, although that's a little bit harder because if we're not following each other, it goes into some other file that's uh, impossibly deep with stuff that I don't look at. So best thing to do would be Chris at enormacast.com. I appreciate it. I, uh, I would like to do sort of a tribute to Mike, and I need some more photos. Cool. Thank you. All right, let's move on to Miranda Oakley. Super accomplished guide, super accomplished climber. How accomplished? Well, she's got first ascents down in South America, both in El Shaltan, Patagonia, as well as Cochamo. She's an excellent accomplished trad climber, has 513 flashes in Indian Creek, plus a wall climber. Plus, she holds the women's record for rope soloing the nose and is maybe the only woman to do it in under a day, under 24 hours. She's done the free rider, too. Yeah. Basically, you huck a rack at this woman, point her at a wall, and she'll climb it. Um, but, you know, I don't want to call Miranda Oakley an every person. You know, I, I talk about the sort of every person interview that people ask me for sometimes because she's extraordinary in so many different ways. But the thing about Miranda that is, um, I think, encouraging and, and maybe kind of puts her towards that category is her entry into the climbing and how she got to be good and how she got to be uh, a professional guide and all these things is, is just surprisingly normal. And uh, the truth is, is she just uh, dedicated herself to it passionately and did all the right steps and moved towards her goals. And, you know, I don't want to say again that she's not special, but it's a path that a lot of people who have doubts about this sort of life as a climber or wonder how it's done, if you will, you know, she's she's got a good pathway maybe that a lot of us could follow. And obviously, everybody has advantages and disadvantages and, and Miranda had her share. But still, you know, she went at it methodically she decided to take some chances here and there with her life, and it's worked out pretty damn good. And she became a climber, and she's lived this very successful life as a climber. So yeah, maybe in here is a bit of a a bit of a how-to if you're you know stuck in a place like Maryland, like she grew up, and wondering how do I get out there? 
and get after my dreams and still maintain a little bit of comfort. Don't give it all away to the dirtbag life. And if you want to learn more about Miranda or learn more from Miranda, you can find her at MirandaOakley.com. And yes, she's a certified guide doing courses in California. Um, you know, but for the right price, hell, she'd probably do a course anywhere. Okay, let's get to it. A nice down-to-earth conversation with guide and climber Miranda Oakley. Do you remember those halcyon days back in January when every ray of sunshine felt like a warm hug from a celestial being? Skiing, climbing, we yearned for its caress. But now that it's dead summer, the tables have turned. The sun now stalks us like an enormous toddler with a magnifying glass. The burning orb, the Death Star, call it what you will. Just don't be caught out at noon on some edgy crimp fest lest your feet swell and your tips shred. But Black Diamond has a way to fight back. My favorite piece of BD apparel, the Alpenglow hoodie. Built with UPF sun protection, pits for movement, a hood designed to go under your helmet, and even some sort of odor control next-gen tech to help with that sour fear stink we all work up on the NAR. Or is that just me? Is that a thing with everyone, the, the stinky pits after being scared? But frankly, if you aren't basically living in a sun hoodie during the summer months, you may in fact be an iguana. But at least now, your tongue can go from zero to 60 in one one-hundredth of a second. Don't just feel the burn, fight the burn. And check out the Alpenglow hoodie and all the great gear at BlackDiamondEquipment.com or your favorite local shop. My first real guiding job was in Yosemite, working for the Yosemite Mountaineering School. Gosh, I started working in Yosemite like 2006, um, just washing dishes and like slowly worked my way from that to like waiting tables. And then I was like a hiking guide for one year. And that's where I met. Um, and that's, you know, the boss for me at the time was the same as the boss for the climbing guides. And he knew like more or less what I was doing because uh, I was there to climb. Obviously, I was in I was in Yosemite washing dishes, waiting tables, and then working as a hiking guide specifically so I could climb in the valley as much as possible and in Tuolumne. And so I was slowly building my climbing resume there, I guess, or my tick list. And my boss eventually was like, "You should do your, you should start on the, like the AMGA track so that you can become a climbing guide here." And so. Yeah, I did my first class at the AMGA, and that's when I got hired as a guide in Yosemite. And then, yeah, every year after that, sort of came back to work as a guide and continued with my my guiding career classes with the AMGA. So, yeah, and that's awesome. I mean, in you know, you're 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 guiding hiking. You know, <laughs> you probably know what the Enormacast uh, adage is about hiking: um, the long approach to nowhere. But um, <laughs> And then, and then you move into climbing, obviously, because you're like, well, I'm a climber, and and you know, a lot of guides, I think, their first thing is like, oh, I'll get to paid, be paid to go climbing, and then that, you know, can can go either way, where you it shatters your illusions, and you're like, um, this isn't really the climbing I wanted to do. So tell me a little again, a little bit about a transition of like thinking about, well, this is a way for me to you know stay in Yosemite, make money, support my climbing habit. To you know, this is something that I'm gonna pursue heavily and professionally did you have any trips or anything else that you can say is a standout moment when you were like this is this is pretty cool and this is you know what I want to do for now 
Yeah, I guess it was also in this point in my life where I figured I can't just be like a dirtbag forever. <laughs> Not that a climbing guide is um, that much better than that, but I just realized I needed like some stability um, and I needed to work towards more of a career. And I did like guiding. I mean, I, I like guiding. I still I enjoy it very much. I think I have a good attitude for it. I've got a lot of patience. I mean, that's sort of something acquired as I got more into guiding because you have to, one of, that's one of the key elements of being a guide is you have to be very patient. <laughs> but yeah, I guess at the time of my life where I started guiding, it was definitely also coincided with a time in my life where I knew I needed to kind of figure out more of a plan, plan ahead, uh, more than just like to the next season of climbing. And um, yeah, it's worked out pretty well. And people always ask like, you know, you know, what are you going to do when you get old and you're too old to guide anymore? And I kind of figured like that's when I'll really enjoy guiding because I mean, mostly what I do is like the really moderate multi pitches with people and they're sometimes even easier than that. And, um, and that's, you know, at least in the beginning and still now I'm like sacrificing, like having to go to work and guide these moderate multi pitches for um, the climbing that I really want to do, which is, you know, like bigger routes on, or harder routes or, you know, whatever. Um, but like, once I get old, I won't want to do that stuff anymore. And I'll be psyched on <laughs> climbing after six over and over again. So <laughs> yeah, getting old, I'll tell you. Um, that's so <laughs> funny that's because it's for. like the, 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 the distance between, and I don't know how old you are, but I'm just going to gather that the distance between where you are now and when you're like too old to try to climb hard, there's a lot of time between now and then and, and a lot of pit twists and turns and paths and changes. So mm -hmm. um, I think it's funny that, that people are like, well, what's going to happen in what, 35 or 40 years <laughs> when you can't try hard anymore? Um, I think that's funny because yeah. um, that's, you know, having been in your very same position, someone I guided for seven years over, over about a decade, but um, seven seasons and um, yeah, life what I imagined then and is what's happening now is like, yeah, they're, they're, they're completely disconnected. So, yeah. um, I think that's, that's pretty funny. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I remember thinking in terms of like, you know, these quote unquote moderate days with, with clients, like, especially if you have more than one, like I remember being able to kind of focus too on like just my systems and how every time I would go out with the group, um, or like, especially more than one client at a time, like you could, you could be spending your time, like how efficient am I getting with this? And like, where am I trimming, you know, inefficiencies out of the system? And mm -hmm. I, I always felt like that really later on, like worked right into my climbing of big, especially of oh, bigger yeah. objectives. Totally. Like the efficiency game is like my favorite game, like trying to figure out ways to make the system more efficient, whether I'm guiding or on like a bigger climb. Well, yeah. I mean, in one of the big things that came out in, in the media around you is, is having, you know, rope sold the nose in, in under a day or in a day, you know, which is basically just a, an absolute test in, in, you know, rope efficiency. Totally. Um, so I could see how the two things would certainly go together, yeah. you know? Yeah. I like the um, problem solving aspect of climbing whether it comes to like you know boulder problem or um rope systems i've always enjoyed that like problem solving aspect of it 
Yeah, I mean, and, and where did your sort of um, origins, you know, your desire to climb come from? I, I believe I read it was, it was a pretty typical gym start, you know, get, getting into a climbing gym. But I, a lot of times I'm more interested in, in the question of like, when did it, did it seem like it was a good idea to, um, to go all in? As even my last guest, uh, Scott Franklin, said, you know, that this was going to be this was going to be what I was going to do um, is a more interesting, you know, sort of answer than like, oh, I went to a birthday party at a climbing gym or I went, you know, <laughs> whatever happened. Like the more important thing in my mind is when did you go like, wow, this is this is what I'm going to do. I mean, I honestly did feel like that all along, even in the, the crappy climbing jazz. I, I grew up in Maryland and so um, we didn't have much more than like a climbing gym. And I started in the year 2000. So even the climbing gym that I went to wasn't even that great of a climb. It's nothing like the climbing gyms they have now. Right. You know? <laughs> and I kind of feel like if if you get into climbing in that environment where it's like you're living in like one of the flattest places in the country and not even the climbing gym is that great, like, and you're still into it, then that's how you know you're like really <laughs> into it. Um <laughs> When there's some plywood with some like yeah. old gross holds on it, we'll we'll like get into your under your skin. The rest of it will for sure. Yeah, I remember getting like a staff infection from like the <laughs> the climbing holds. Like this is great. My hand is completely ballooned. Yeah. This is what I want. Yeah. So, Did you really get a staff infection from the climbing? Yeah, well I actually had um climbed outside, managed to get outside oh. and had like a little cut in my hand and then climbed to the gym after that. And then I got like a just like a blister, I guess, like a, oh. a giant like zit on my hand. And my whole right. hand was swollen and my doctor said it was like staff or something. So. Oh my God. <laughs> I encountered that in the creek one time. Oh, uh, this, yeah. this woman we were all camped with, um, this British girl named Francesca or, or something like that. But yeah, she, she, her, I mean, I don't, I, she, she obviously like let it go and her hand was like, I mean, as big as my head Ugh. by the time she dealt with this. So she, she actually was courting um, disaster, yeah. as you do when you don't have any money or insurance, yeah. Um, you know? So, yeah. yeah, but anyhow, but you're just throwing your that old climbing gym under the bus. Is it? Is it oh. still there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. I mean, it's just... <laughs> no, I'm just joking. <laughs> the climbing gym has since it's gone out of... It hasn't gone out of business as like, it's like one of those... Um, franchises so they've got a few right. locations but the one that i used to climb at is no longer there okay. but yeah it was nice. totally like the last generation of climbing gyms like not this newer generation of climbing gyms that and how, nice. how old were you i was 15 it was the year about, 2000 okay yeah and what do you think it was about you um as a 15 year old in maryland that that path or that thing got into you because that's like a a question I'm just endlessly fascinated on this podcast and, and it's just like what it is that made, you know, a hundred other kids go into that gym and, you know, some of them have a good time and some of them don't and some of them stick with it, some of them don't, but like to get that under your skin to change your life, like what, what do you think it was about you as a person? I mean, I guess it's kind of the same as what a lot of climbers kind of have in common is like, you know, I loved the outdoors. I liked having like going on adventures even though mm -hmm. I guess going to the climbing gym, you know, at that point for me, it was like an adventure, but you know, it's all relative. I guess I also, um, I really wanted to be like an athlete or I wanted to be athletic, but I sucked at team sports. So I would try mm -hmm. basketball and I was like terrible, just on the bench the whole time, like lacrosse, soccer, whatever it was I tried. I was just 
useless, like running around in the field, like not knowing where to go kind of thing. <laughs> and then when I, and I started climbing, I was like kind of naturally like pretty good at it or okay at it at least. And, and it was just like fun, you know, and I, I liked getting really tired, like physically from it. And I liked the aspect of problem solving. Like I mentioned, like I loved that bouldering was like mostly what I did at that point. And I loved that it was like solving a problem or a puzzle with your whole body. I thought that was like so cool at the time. Yeah. I mean, in, in 2000, um, you know, like you said, this is a fledgling gym at that point. You're showing up this 15 year old girl into still, you know, at that point, like kind of a boys and, and men's club that climbing was even in 2000. Um, you know, what was the community that you found? Were, were there other girls there? Were there other kids um, as excited as you were that were sort of became a cohort? Yeah, I mean, I kind of found a, a kind of like community where I felt like I fit in a little bit better. I mean, I never I was never like a popular kid in high school. And then when I started the climbing gym, I joined one of these like teams that are now like really competitive and really good. <laughs> Uh, but we were we were just kind of having fun on the team that I was on. <laughs> and there weren't a lot of women climbing, but there were a lot of girls like my age climbing. And I also found a way I was like, oh, I can like actually talk to boys here. I, I think like in high school, I like rarely talked to a boy. And <laughs> the climbing gym, just like having that in common, I'm like, oh, I, like, I can talk to boys. Like, <laughs> So and then just like kind of being on the same playing field as like other people made me feel like. I could talk to people and not be afraid of, you know, sounding dumb or, you know, I wasn't as shy anymore. I kind of came out of my shell a little bit. So I found the climbing community at the gym to be really good for that for me. It was just kind of like other sort of like outsiders or people who were like on the fringe a little bit. And I just felt like I fit in a little bit better there. But. Yeah, it was so much harder to find it, you know. Um, I mean, people talk about pre-gym era. But even then, like it was, it was a, it was like a big leap to go find climbing at that point. It wasn't like in our face all the time. So you probably yeah. did end up with some kids that were like, you know, kind of in the same boat as you were as far as connecting with other things in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that's thematically a pretty common, common sort of sound, especially what you said about sports. I mean, not just on this podcast, but in my life, it's like, you know, so many climbers I know who are these incredible athletes on the rock are just, you know you get into a basketball pickup game, it's like the most ridiculous thing you've ever seen in your life, you know, yeah. <laughs> and myself included, you know. Um, what about getting outside to into the climbing world and sort of a big barrier was just simply where you lived? Throughout high school, I was kind of limited to climbing in Maryland, which is like hike around to the top and set up top ropes on these 30 foot cliffs. Couldn't even like really lead mm -hmm. anything because of the rock there. And I didn't that have sounds ideal, anyways. frankly. Yeah, it was actually perfect to, be to learn. With you? Yeah. yeah, I learned yeah. how to build an anchor off of trees and like extend the master point over the cliff, you know. And then I went to college in Southern Maryland, and that's where I met my friend Chris, who you mentioned earlier. Chris Coleman, yeah. Yeah, and we started like a climbing club there because we found out that the school had like this extra money set aside for like club sports. And we were like, oh, like if we, we like figured out like a loophole, we're like, oh, if we can like start a climbing club and they'll like buy us ropes, and crash pads and all this stuff. Um, but we still had like no idea what we were doing. I think Chris bought like a set of quick draws, but he only bought like nine of them or something like that. So we went to like the New River Gorge a couple of times and some other places in like West Virginia. And I remember like not 
having enough draws to do like most of the routes, like the sport climbing routes there. And not even, we didn't even have, like, we didn't even know what trad gear was. We were so fresh. So like such beginners. So was it a climbing club of two? There was like four or five of us. Were some other people? (laughs) (laughs) We were in Southern Maryland and it was still like, I would say before climbing got really popular. So there wasn't like a lot of motivation. Like no one was like, oh yeah, I wanted to drive seven hours to the New River Gorge. So that we can maybe get, climb something. <laughs> if yeah, right. we can find something that's easy enough that is only seven bolts long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty limiting factor. Yeah. Um, I guess then it's the cat, the die is cast, as they say, as far as what's going to happen to you after um, you get out of college. Doesn't sound like you dropped out to become a climber, but you finished. Yeah, I managed to finish college. It's probably good that I didn't climb during college or else I might not have finished. And I didn't climb a lot. I like had those weekend Mm -hmm. trips every once in a while. But but yeah, then after college, and it was so flat where I went to school in Southern Maryland that... um, I decided that I wanted to go like live somewhere where there was climbing. Like that was like my main goal. And my friend had worked in the high Sierra camps of Yosemite um, a couple of years before. And she was like, Oh, this is like what you can do. Like you go to Yosemite, she's got to pass a drug test and then they'll give you a job and you can like wash dishes and you can climb as much as you want. And I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. That's what I need to do. So I did exactly that. Like, Drove out west with a couple of friends. Chris was one of the guys and my boyfriend at the time, this other guy. And we packed all our stuff into this like Saturn coop. We spent like a month like climbing in all these different places and um, using like Dr. Topo. I don't know if you remember Dr. Topo. Vaguely. (laughs) As a guide, kind of like our makeshift guidebook for these different climbing areas. And finally, we made it out to Yosemite. I applied for a job and started working there. And that's where I... That's where I pretty much like cut my teeth with like climbing. I mean, I would really say I really learned how to climb there. I mean, I had been climbing a bit, had done some leading outdoors, had done a bunch of top roping and bouldering outdoors, but like, you know, Yosemite is where I really learned to climb. I I, want to get a little more specific about where you climbed on the way, but also I'm trying to delve into sort of, I'm trying to create this archetype in my mind of, of of these people that do this. And I mean, were you at all nervous to cut ties with, sort of the normal path, you know, to set out with no, no money and, and, and no I- specific idea? Or was it something that just felt like, you know, an intoxicating adventure? I think at that point, I, I was just so excited to get out of Maryland that right. <laughs> I wasn't even, I mean, I should have been nervous. But, you know, at the time, I thought like $500 was plenty of money. And I wasn't worried about money, you know, even though it didn't have much. And I just kind of assumed I would get a job and I wouldn't have to worry about it in like a month. And yeah, I mean, I should have been more nervous, like like looking looking back at it. (laughs) And I think if I did the same thing now, I'd be really nervous. But at the time, I was just so anxious or so antsy to like go climb like bigger stuff and, you know, actually like become a climber, you know, that I. Well, I I wanted to ask you about your parents, too, because we're going to talk a little bit about that later as well, where they came from. But. You know, it's it's also this question that's always in my mind because it they have to help facilitate. You know, especially even just driving your your butt to the gym. Um, if you were 15 when you started, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people start even earlier, so they have to be on board with this. But then also, you know, my question for 
kids who are, you know, college bound, that's a lot of times coming from their folks too. And then, you know, the dropout questions in there and then, mm-hmm. you know, but then the other question is like, okay, what about their attitude when you were like, adios, um, I'm heading to the West coast, you know, with 500 bucks <laughs> in, a, in a Saturn with two dudes, I'm out. I definitely don't <laughs> think they um, realized what it was going to turn into. Cause I think they were like, oh yeah, cool, honey, have an adventure. We'll see you in September, you know? Um, sure. And I was like, wait. I'll help you put your resume together <laughs> yeah. in September. <laughs> you can come back and get a real job, you know? <laughs> yeah, they definitely, even when my mom took me to the climbing gym for the first time, I don't think she realized like what exactly she was getting me into and what kind of like monster she was creating with that. <laughs> right. But how did she uh, adapt to that? It took a long time for her to come around. I always tell people who are like in the same position with their parents, like, oh, just keep doing what you're doing they'll come around eventually like (laughs) but um i think it was like after i started guiding that she was more like oh okay like you know this is something that is like more of a career and i think now she's like looking at the climbing community and she's like more educated about it all and she realizes like oh yeah climbing is like there's like ways to make money off of it I mean, at this point, I have no other skills to make money off of because I spent so much of my adulthood climbing that I'm like, well, I don't even know what else I would do. So I've got to kind of figure it out. I'm committed to this track of life, you know? And Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you know how you, <laughs> I feel. So it's like, but at the same time, we're really lucky because climbing is also getting really popular right now. And right. I mean, I just kind of, I feel for me, that just feels like pure luck that like I spent so much of my adulthood trying to perfect this skill that's like otherwise almost completely useless. But now so many people are getting into it that it's like, okay, there is like a way to sort of make a living. I'm not like making great money, but I'm making, you know, I'm getting by. So sure, sure. sure. And you're still pursuing your climbing dreams too. I don't know if you know this, but I'm actually pregnant. I'm like eight months pregnant right now. So I'm taking like a little bit of a break and my I'm shifting gears. <laughs> now, I didn't know if you wanted to talk about it, so I wasn't going to bring it up. Um, I didn't know that it was eight months because I can only see your face too. Um, yeah. You look great. Yeah, if I sit up, you see the, <laughs> the watermelon inside of me. <laughs> they say it's a well, baby. that's pretty amazing. Yeah. How are you feeling about that? I mean, I feel great. I've... I'm at the point in my life where I've done, like, you know, I've been able to accomplish a lot of my goals climbing. And, you know, that was kind of like, you know, how some people are like, oh, like if I have a kid, I need to do X, Y, and B. And it's usually has to do with their career or like things like that. For me, it's like, okay, well, um, if I have a kid, I want to do X, Y, and B. And they're all like climbing goals. And I feel sure. like I've done enough of those, you know, as I, of course, like the more climbing goals you complete, the more you have. And I still have a lot of climbing goals, but, um, you know, I'm definitely feeling like, okay, I can like set that aside just for a little bit or like change at least at the very least change gears with my climbing, like instead of focusing on long adventurous routes, I can get really good at bouldering and sport climbing and stuff like that. Hopefully. I didn't have to carry our child, obviously, but I had the exact same attitude when we found out that Steph's pregnant. I was just like, yeah, you know, I've done, I've done plenty. And it ain't over, but you're certainly going to have to shift gears away from um, big, long, long times away from, yeah. from home and stuff like that. But, yeah. but I had kind of the same attitude of like, you know, I'm, I'm not like clawing 
to do you know the latest adventure that I dreamed up in my head anymore so mm-hmm. it should work out but what is you know what you're you're sitting here eight months which is eight and a half I, months like I said I had yeah yeah oh I had no idea so yeah. that's really fascinating but you know what, what do you what do you see I mean you know you're probably wrong um, <laughs> no offense yeah. but um <laughs> like what do you see besides like oh I can't do big roots but what is your life as a as a climbing mom and and eventually a guiding mom when you get back to that going to look like you think well what i'm hoping for (laughs) is um like i've never been disciplined about training before in the past i've always just Mm -hmm. mostly just trained by climbing things that were like what i wanted to do you know like that's the trad climbing way yeah (laughs) yeah and so but now i'm thinking (laughs) like oh i live i live in bishop and you know we've got amazing sport climbing and bouldering and all this stuff and i'm like okay well if i train and get out maybe a couple times a week even maybe I can start having different types of goals you know certain single pitch climbs that I've always been interested in doing and you know eventually if I pursue that for a while eventually I can take that those strengths or like take my ability to try hard off the ground a little bit more like once the baby gets a bit bigger and is less dependent on me Anyways, that's the idea. That's like kind of what I've seen with parents, you know, like getting strong bouldering and training. And I mean, I can train while the baby's napping, I think. Like I've got a hangboard, sure. I've got a little home wall. <laughs> yeah, it's all about it's all about uh, motivation, you know. Yeah. The, the logistics of it are totally possible. It's the mental part of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so, I, do, I fully but, um, expect to be like sleep deprived and tired for the first few months. So I'm I'm trying to factor that in. I'm still thinking like, oh, like, okay, when should I get a gym membership? Or like, when should I try to buy some weights <laughs> and things like that? Right. But, um, you can hangboard while you're sleepy. It's that's not a, true. It's not, yeah. It's not impossible. Yeah. This doesn't require like <laughs> complex thought. <laughs> <feeling like> that. <laughs> um, yeah, that all sounds totally reasonable. And yeah. I, I, I think you can, yeah, I think you're on the right track, <laughs> you know, ha- having been through it again, not as as someone whose who's body changed so much, um, which will be part of the game mm-hmm. as well. But you started out as a boulder, it sounds like, yeah. um, in the gym. So just uh, rekindle that. Yeah, yeah be full <laughs> circle back to that. So, yeah. um, and, and professionally, obviously, you'll have to take some, some time off. Where, where are yeah. you located? So right now, I decided to um, do the whole birth and the first few months of um, motherhood in santa cruz because my partner and okay. i both have family here and um cool i don't know there's like a NICU here <laughs> for giving birth um we don't have that in bishop so i just figured this is like a better spot and also my partner has work here as well so we're gonna kind of lay low here for a few months and unfortunately i'll kind of miss out on my yosemite guiding season this summer so it's kind of the worst timing for that you know <laughs> But my plan is to teach classes in the Eastern Sierra this fall. And that's something I've been doing on and off for years. I really love teaching classes. It's kind of like the less glorified part of climbing guiding. But for me, it like just presents these like different types of challenges. No matter how good you get at teaching a class, like you still have this like variability of the people in your class and being Mm -hmm. able to kind of meet people at whatever level they're at and teaching right. these skills that they need to like be climbers uh, has always been really um, engaging for me. I really enjoy that. So, well, and also just figuring out how they learn. Yeah, you know? exactly. Because if you, yeah. yeah. If you walk in, you know, doing the same thing from the last group, it may not 
it may not land on on the next people. I, yeah. I say that only because I I enjoyed the same thing. Um, I guided in in Colorado, but also in in Southern California, particularly was where I taught a lot of peer classes, and mm-hmm. I I enjoyed that even more than like just single guiding days. Um, I also found it a lot less risky. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I started to get a little bit concerned about the risk involved with guiding you know, in the mountains that are just pure, pure like climbing guiding. So mm-hmm. the, the classes seemed a lot more in hand with that. But yeah, it was super fun. I, I, I always had a great time. I taught out at Joshua Tree so oh, much cool. that I used to, I used to um, say that I was solely responsible for Joshua Tree becoming overcrowded. Because <laughs> <laughs> I like taught so many people like how to hang top ropes and, you know, set up anchors and all that stuff. And then I would see them weekend after weekend. I'd be like, okay, yeah, this is my fault. That's, that's a great feeling though, to see your, the people that you taught how to climb, like working mm-hmm. it out on their own or figuring it out. But yeah, I mean, yeah, there's that double-edged sword of like, you know, you're getting more people into the sport which is exactly what we all complain about, right? It's like too many people are getting into the sport, but right. I don't know. I don't really But you're doing in it in the, the right way. I yeah. Think. I think you're doing it the right way. I mean, that's yeah. obviously like, you know, a bias because we did it or we or you do it. But, but you know, you can, that whole like fear of the sort of wildness, unfettered like Jim to Craig thing. I feel like the, like the guiding and and classwork is like an intervention to that of like hey slow down yeah you know totally. do this you you won't get hurt you know and then while you're teaching those classes you're sort of teaching crag etiquette and you know mm-hmm. being an example there too so totally um, no I I felt pretty good about it all and I it's been cool because as I've you know ten years removed or more from that I started this podcast and sort of you know, reintroduce my name to the climbing world. I've, I've heard from a lot of those people actually like, oh, I remember when I took a class from oh, that's you. awesome. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, so it's, it is pretty cool. And, and I think you'll probably have that as well um, when you, uh, or a lot of your former students are going to hear this and be like, oh yeah, yeah, that's the woman I took that class from yeah. or whatever. So it should be pretty cool. All right, well, let me shift gears. That was, that was uh, I'm glad you brought that up actually, because I, like I said, I wasn't necessarily going to bring it up because I didn't even know how... Um, <laughs> How long you've been pregnant? If and it was early, you know how that yeah. was sort of like a a personal thing to announce to people. Yeah, well, now so it's like pretty obvious, that. you know. People on the street stopping <laughs> like said, me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't do that. Like a woman has to be like, you know, like super seriously, obviously pregnant before I I'm gonna bring up like, oh, yeah, are you pregnant? Because yeah. <laughs> um, you Probably can, yeah, safe, you can walk into bad. a very horrible faux pas with that yeah. one. Like I just saw a picture of Paige Clausen um, right now and she looks extraordinarily pregnant. Mm-hmm. So yeah, <laughs> that's I an think easy one. there's like a few climbers <laughs> who are exact same, like almost the same due date as me out there. I think Paige is one of them. And yeah, I think Nina is also, yeah. I think she's like one week. Nina Caprez is oh, right. also pregnant one week behind where I'm at, I think. Something like that. All right. I, I just, other girls I cool. follow well, on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I mean, that's always comforting, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so let me switch gears up because I definitely want to get to this because as I mentioned, it was it was part of the reason we got in touch, although so far, I'm, I'm, you know, we haven't even gotten there and this has been, been super fun. But the way I read it is your mom is a Palestinian immigrant. Is that correct? Yeah. But I did an interview where I talked to to another person who brought up at least seeing a presentation you'd given about your connection to Palestine, having gone there and, and the climbing there. So can, can we talk a little bit about that and what your connection is, what your interest was, and what you actually did to to sort of foster that connection with the climbing community? 
Yeah, I love that you brought that up. I, it's like one of my favorite things to talk about. So, <laughs> oh, cool. Um, Let's get into it. Yeah, then. yeah. So my mom is Palestinian, and she moved to the U.S. when in the fifties, and met my dad. Mm-hmm. My dad's American, and I was lucky enough to like grow up kind of half in the Palestinian community because uh, my mom had a bunch of her has a bunch of Palestinian friends, and her whole side of the family are all Palestinians. So I got to see like you know that cultural side of it, and then growing up in D.C., my parents would take often take me to these like rallies and stuff, and often they were about other stuff, but sometimes about Palestinian rights, but often about things going on in the Middle East just due to like, you know, the time that I grew up in. And so you're talking like anti-war protests yeah, and things like yeah. that. Yeah. Like the war in Iraq and, and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't even remember that stuff too much. And, you know, after I got into climbing, my, the world of Palestine, you know, sort of faded for me because I got into like climbing, the climbing community, and I found kind of like my place there. And I never really thought there would be any like intersection of that. Mm-hmm. But then randomly, my mom's friend sent me this like Al Jazeera article about these guys from uh, wherever, but they were living in, they were going to a college in Boulder. What's the name of that? Colorado College. The ones that all the, mm-hmm. the climbers, the one that all the climbers go to. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> they definitely pump out some good climbers. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but they ended up moving to Ramallah, which is a town in the West Bank in Palestine where my mom's from. And they started developing sport climbing areas there and sort of getting like taking beginner groups out there. And they eventually went on to start a climbing and build a climbing gym there. And when I first heard about this, I was like, wait, what? There's climbing in Palestine? I had always wanted to go to Palestine. And at that point, I only traveled to climb. Like I never got on a trip to do anything else. So I wasn't even sure if I could go anywhere without rock climbing. And um, my family had mostly moved to the U.S. So like I didn't have a lot of family left there. So it's kind of intimidated by like going to Palestine just to go. But once I heard about these guys like who started a climbing community, I was like, oh, there's like climb like Palestinian climbers that I could climb with. Like that'd be so cool. And um, I kind of like. Uh, warmed up to the idea of traveling there. I started reaching out to one of the guys, Tim Bruins, who was out there taking people climbing and developing sport climbing areas. And I was like, well, what can I do? Like, I'll donate money. I'll donate climbing gear. And he's like, really, you just got to come climb with us. That's like the best thing you can do. And so, yeah, I did. In 2017, I traveled there for the first time. And it was amazing. It was so at that point, the climbing gym had been built. So climbing gyms are just really cool places in general, like all over the world for people to kind of come together and find community. Like I mentioned, getting into climbing myself at the climbing gym and finding a community there. But I think the addition of building this climbing gym in Palestine might have helped the climbing community become like more cohesive there. So anyways, like one of the first things I did when I got to Ramallah was go to the climbing gym. And I met all these people and it was just amazing how like welcoming everybody was. And I mean, they were first just like, wow, you, you guys live in Yosemite and you came to Palestine to go rock climbing. And I was like, well, yeah. And then, I, you know, of course it would come out that my mom is Palestinian and, you know, I wanted to see where she was from, which is Ramallah. 
And then they were just right, like besides them, beside themselves, like, like right. oh, that's so cool. Like you're Palestinian, and yeah, normally I wouldn't call myself Palestinian, you know, because I'm fully like Americanized, you know. But it was cool that they were like, oh, you're Palestinian. You're like a Palestinian climber, and I'm like, oh yeah. Like they just fully like accepted me into like the group and just made me feel super welcome. I mean, they were already making me feel welcome before, and then telling them that. You know, I was Palestinian. They were just like next level of like welcoming. And um, yeah, and then it was great. I got to like climb at all of the climbing areas. And some of the areas were in like kind of Palestinian territories. And those are nice because kind of I could go there with my new Palestinian friends like more freely or they could travel there freely. And then some of the areas were in Israeli controlled areas of the West Bank or of Palestine. And those were a little bit harder. And that's why I learned, you know, some of the struggles and the hardships of, and issues with freedom of movement that comes with like living in a militarily occupied area that the Palestinians had to deal with kind of daily. Right. And were you able to move around? Yeah. And what what sort of, what sort of uh, you know, your status as, as an American, you know, tourist, if you will, that wasn't a problem to for you to move around. Yeah. And that was one of the things that kind of struck me about traveling to the area is that I had more freedom to move around there than the people that were from there. Kind of describe that a little more specifically, like what the life of a climber there sort of looks like. Um, when you say these crags, are they fully developed? Um, when you say the freedom of movement, is it is it possible to go to, outside of the, the sort of Palestinian territory for these people? Um, and then like, you know, what does the gym look like even? So what's yeah. their life like as climbers? So yeah, it's really complicated, obviously. So in the West Bank, so when I refer to Palestine, I'm referring to like the West Bank, um, which is if you mm -hmm. look at a map, like depending on which map you look at, you might see like Israel just like include the West Bank and Gaza Strip, and you might see it as like the strip of land in between the two. Um, but usually it's like kind of included. And so the West Bank is like, this section of land in kind of like northern Israel that is along the Jordan River. Um, and then Gaza Strip is another section of Palestinian land that's like down by the Mediterranean. And well, first off, like there's a ton of like climbing also in Israel proper, but Palestinian climbers mm -hmm. for the most part are not allowed to go there. And then throughout the West Bank, you know, you think of it, oh, it's this is Palestine, this is Palestinian land, but it's it's not like it's under military occupation by Israel. But then a lot of it is just taken over by Israeli settlers. Um, mm -hmm. And so they've got like neighborhoods, like about 60% of the land in the West Bank is actually controlled by Israel. And so for climbing there, when Tim and Will, the guys from Boulder who went out there to develop climbing, when they set out to develop climbing for Palestinians, they actually specifically developed climbing in areas um, that were controlled by Palestinian authority. Um, and that was on purpose so that Palestinians would have like freer access to this, these climbing areas. Sure. Um, and then there's a couple of climbing areas that are in Israeli-controlled parts of the West Bank. And Palestinians can still go there, but that's when you see, like, their freedom of movement uh, really restricted. Like, for example, one of the areas that I kind of climbed at the most is called Ein Fada. And that was an area C, so an Israeli-controlled area of the West Bank. And if I wanted to go there by myself or with another American, 
or with an Israeli. It was a quick drive from the city. I could bypass certain checkpoints and I could drive right into this settlement that sort of sits on top of the canyon that the climbing is in. And I could just drive right down to the entrance of the nature preserve where the climbing was in. And it was literally like a five minute walk from the parking lot to the climbing area. But then if I wanted to go with my Palestinian friends, um, you know, oftentimes if we were in a Palestinian vehicle, they would have certain plates and that would restrict them to certain roads in the West Bank. And so being on those roads, there would usually be a lot more checkpoints. So military checkpoints where they would stop every single car and check their IDs or sometimes just like stop them, search the car. Sometimes they would just wave them through, but it would just create like a bunch of traffic. So you'd be waiting in traffic. And then the Palestinians weren't allowed into, or at least not allowed to drive into the settlements. So they, we would have to park outside of the settlement and then walk around like 45 minutes. It was a beautiful hike, but we would have to walk 45 minutes around the settlement down and drop into the canyon from like the other side of the canyon. And so, you know, it was it was interesting. Like sometimes I'd be like, oh, like I want to go climbing this afternoon. I don't have a lot of time. And my Palestinian friends would be like, well, you should just go. You and Tim should just go climbing because, you know, you'll be able to, you know, get there in like 20 minutes. But if you wait for us or if you, you know, if you go with us, then it'll take like, you know, two hours just to get there. And so that's what was kind of like jarring and, you know, disturbing about the whole thing. Like, because I'm American, I can do all these things that mm-hmm. like the people that actually live here can't do or the people that are from here aren't allowed to do. When I think about Palestine, Palestine, the Israeli um, Palestine conflict, and I don't know too much about it, but then I start to think about climbing, you know, the question sort of is, is like, why bother? Like, why, like, why is this important to, to people's lives who, who have all these other, you know, possible hardships and, and, uh, and things going on politically. And you know what I mean? Like, what is the, what is like in your mind? And, and this isn't like a gotcha thing. I just want to know, like, why do you think it's so important that people and and your friends, Tim, and what's the other guy's name? Uh, Will Harris. I never Um, actually met him because he left before I got there, but you know, is it just pissing into the wind? Is it important? Um, how, how do you feel about it? How does it fit into these people's lives that you met in terms of, of how important it was to them as well? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a good question. Like, I mean, I would definitely have thought that before going over there too. like, what's the point when people are struggling to just like go to work in the morning because of the lack of freedom of movement there and their daily struggles? Like, why bother? teaching these folks how to climb. But um, I mean, I guess I would say because it matters to them. Like my first day climbing there, we went to Ayn Fada and because we had this like really long hike down, I ended up talking to this Palestinian climber who told me about all this like kind of terrible stuff about um, his life living under the Israeli occupation. But he loved climbing and that was like, he was like really into it and kind of like, it was like a way for him to almost like escape what was going on there in a way. Not even like he could like physically get out of there. Like he's pretty restricted and it's hard for him to travel to other countries. But um, like being able to go into this beautiful canyon to go climbing almost is a way to like make him feel more normal I guess or not I don't want to say normal but Mm -hmm. like a way for him to kind of like forget about some of the stuff that's going on 
being there and climbing there definitely made me think about freedom of movement a lot more because that's like the biggest thing, right? Is like, that's like the day-to-day struggle for most Palestinians is like their ability to move about is greatly diminished. And I think that's like part of the reason why we all love climbing, right? Is because we have, we get to experience this kind of like very physical, like freedom to move around on the rock and do whatever we want. Like most sports, you know, you have like these rules, like you have to move in certain directions and things like that. But with climbing, like, I mean, aside from just going up, like there's not a lot of rules for like how you have to move. And so you get a lot of freedom within that to like, so that seems like it's a really positive thing for the Palestinians living in these conditions. So I'll, I'll ask a more basic base question. Yeah. Um, you know, as we go into these like deeper topics, I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of curious, like, what's the climbing like? Is it good? What's it on? Is it limestone? What are we talking yeah, about? Yeah, it's great. It's all like single pitch <laughs> limestone climbing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is, I think, some sandstone like up north near the Jordan River, but I don't know how good that is. But the limestone climbing there is great. It's like typical, like kind of, you know, it's all like a lot of it's newer, like especially the stuff in the Palestinian territories. It's all like pretty fresh. So some of it's kind of sharp still. Um, mm-hmm. And then, yeah. And then you have, and then in the canyons, you have more of these like tufa, like overhanging, like cool, like more typical limestone features, which are really cool. But yeah, it's all like single pitch. I highly encourage like a climbing trip to the Middle East, especially if, if single pitch climbing doesn't quite satisfy your international traveling, like uh, climbing needs. Um, there's also Wadi Rum that's like a few hours away in Jordan where you can find 2000 foot sandstone walls as well. So <laughs> just a little plug for like a climbing trip to the Middle East for anybody who might be interested. But- you, you made a, a, I guess wasn't a joke, just a statement about never cli- traveling for anything but climbing, um, which really resonated with me as well because you know you've only got so much time and money it's like why would i just go wander around a place when i can go climbing but which sounds sort of like uh you know what's the word i'm looking for it sounds um kind of dumb actually um (laughs) isn't the word i'm looking for but that one works (laughs) but what i've also found is that these climbing trips to these places they actually do insert you pretty deeply in the culture in a way that like you know going to a city and and going on a tour or like staying in some nice hotels or whatever normal people do. And they, they go to Europe, getting on a train, moving around, seeing the sights. Mm-hmm. I've always found that you actually are in, uh, almost automatically you're often in these, these unheralded places, even thinking of Spain, like being up in a village somewhere in, in Catalonia versus in Barcelona, like the difference of the integration with the culture that you yeah. get. And ha- I actually have, um, climbed in, in Wadi Rum and traveled to, through Jordan anyway. And yeah, it's just like you you are automatically interfaced deep in the community. And the mm-hmm. other interesting thing I've found is when you're, when you're on a shoestring budget, which you almost always are as a climber, again, you are like at the sort of common person level um, as you travel through the country, you know, yeah. it may seem like you're, you're being cheap, but the fact is, is that you're eating at those restaurants with those folks and you're integrated in a way that I just don't think, you know, sort of a, a more wealthy sort of tourist type trip is ever going to do for you. Um, and I found that to be really the case, um, traveling through Jordan, yeah. um, on a shoestring budget, you know, 
to go to Wadi Rum. Yeah, I feel like Wadi Rum in the south of Jordan is a perfect example of that because, you know, like most of the tourists are only staying a couple of days in any given spot. And they come in, they go to the Bedouin camps, you know, they have like a fire with like, you know, they cook the food underground and stuff. And then, mm-hmm. and then they, they move on to Petra, you know, and they do the next thing. And I think also one of the things that climbing does for me is it, it encourages me to stay for like a longer time in any given area. Mm-hmm. So I was in that first trip to the Middle East. I was in each area for a month. So I was in Jordan for an entire month and I was in Palestine for an entire month. And it just allowed me to like really connect with people on a deeper level rather than I feel like as a tourist, you kind of are, you stay a little bit more separate. I mean, obviously I'm still a tourist, but doing those touristy things, you're kind of a little bit more like separated from the, the community and the culture. You know, when I knew is that when the guys stopped hawking, uh, you know, camel rides and shit to me, um, you (laughs) know, and they stopped saying like, no tourist price for you, (laughs) you know, they're just like, Hey, (laughs) Hey. Oh, there's that guy again. Like, yeah. you know, that that's when you know you've like at least ascended or like whatever, ascended, descended a level a bit when they're just like over you. Yeah. A bit. <laughs> like, totally. You're just a guy that or in your case, you're just a woman that's there and, and like their fascination with you or their attempts to sell you shit has, has moved yeah. on. Then you're like, OK, we could probably have a conversation. Yeah. Now, you know? <laughs> or at least, a you know, at least a slightly more or less kind of veneered conversation where I'm a tourist and you're you're trying to to sell me something we maybe could get beyond that um it's hard I mean even a month it's hard and with that culture it's very hard and I'm assuming um you know being a woman in that culture makes those conversations trickier as well I don't know did you go on a camel ride I never rode a camel I hate to undercut I, their business. I went but, on a lot uh, of Jeep, It's not that yeah, great. Yeah, it doesn't seem like that. The Jeep rides were really fun. I went on a lot of Jeep rides and right that was fun. Yeah. Raging across the middle of the yeah. desert in a Toyota Land Cruiser or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> they're a lot fl- uh, faster than the camels, too, to get to like the climbing areas. Yeah. So. yeah. Um, but how, yeah, I mean, on a, on a different note, how did you feel um, sort of traveling in those countries as a woman? Yeah, I mean, in Palestine, it was it was different because um, I don't know. In Ramallah, it's like a big city, and you mm-hmm. see women wearing everything from like I mean, you don't see a lot of burqas there, but you see women wearing hijabs all right. the time. Um, but then you see women, you know, wearing like tight jeans and their hair and makeup and all that, and so you see the whole like gambit. I don't know. I mean, I was like in embedded in this climbing community, and I think um, as in the United States, um, climbers tend to be uh, a little bit more well off and a little bit more well educated, and so I didn't see a lot of like what people would stereo stereotypically think of like this like gender divide in the Middle East. And I'm sure it exists, and in Wadi Rum, I saw that a bit more. I mean, I mean, Wadi Rum and Amman, Jordan, like the capital of Jordan, might as well be two different countries, right? Because sure, um, it's so different. I 100 percent agree. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, Wadi Rum was definitely like a little bit more eye opening because women there did wear burqas, and and you know, sometimes in some cases weren't really like allowed to leave the house. I guess like I didn't see a lot of women out out there, mm-hmm. and so that was kind of weird. But um. You know, what I thought was kind of strange, too, is that you would see a lot of sort of young girls, um, like kids, Mm -hmm. and then like sort of tween, early teenagers were still out and about. And then 
in in you know in sort of whatever clothes they had mm-hmm. and and then all of a sudden it was like there was a cutoff point and yeah. that was that was like you wouldn't see actual women um or yeah. you'd see them you know behind fences or you know going about their day yeah. but in burkas and things like that yeah. so it was like i was like wow where, where's the cutoff point you know and then and then their life completely changes yeah. i mean and, and again these are rural villages so they tend to be older in their ways and and more conservative yeah. um than like you said amman was a very very modern city mm-hmm. you know yeah it's totally different yeah. you know it's like i was even hanging out with jordanians in wadi rum who were from amman you know it was like they were almost like foreigners you know like in this town like almost as foreign as mm-hmm. i was in this town you know because it's just so different I had one other last question about your experience in Palestine. Um, you mentioned Israeli climbers, and I, I know there's a lot of them. Um, I ran into some of them in Wadi Rum mm-hmm. um, and in Spain and, um, you know, and friends with a couple. In, in your experience, did you, you know, sort of cross that line and, and, and end up climbing with Israeli climbers as well when you were down there? No, I guess short answer would be no. I mostly just climbed with Palestinian climbers mm-hmm. um i did like have some interactions like at specifically the climbing area that i mentioned that was in the israeli mm-hmm. controlled part of the west bank or palestine i'm called Ain Fada. and yeah and that was interesting everyone was super nice you know and um mm-hmm. i definitely felt like i could relate more to the israeli climbers because uh, well i mean a lot of them are you know from like the u.s um and so it was right. really easy to like get along with them and we had less like cultural barriers, I guess. That part was cool, but I never like specifically climbed with them. It was kind of like I would see them at the crags and mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. we would interact and have our niceties and talk about, you know, like, oh, yeah, I'm a climbing guide in Yosemite, like yada yada. And that was pretty much it. Right. You know, I have this like naive, you know, pie in the sky bullshit attitude that like these the, the climbing community is like this one great leveler and we can all get along and and things like that and is there any sort of cultural crossover between um the two groups uh or is are the sort of politics too big i mean i'm sure there is like i've heard of some of the people in the the palestinians in the climbing community there climbing with israeli climbers yeah i kind of thought the same thing when i went over there like oh like maybe we'll have this like magical moment where like the Palestinian climbers and the Israeli climbers come together and they realize like, you know, climbing is the great equalizer. And, but no, I mean, I think part of the reason for that. <laughs> it's too complicated <laughs> yeah. for that. Like we're not. Yeah. Dumb, and there's just like to really believe that. Yeah. Can it's, it's one of those things that you want to think it could happen. But I think the reality mm. is that there's just too much disparity in, you know, people's rights there, you know, where you have this mm. group of people who's part of this occupying nation who's who are like actively participating in settler colonialism and like a lot of times like the climbers won't be but um they're part of that movement just inherently because Mm -hmm. you know they're israeli and and then you have the people who are like you know firsthand being affected by that you know like people whose home yeah homes have been destroyed who have been to prison for no no good reason and then, yeah, and then there is the access to climbing that's different as well. Like, so just on like a basic climbing mm-hmm. level. So like, you know, like I mentioned, like getting to the crag in in the West Bank. So in the Palestinian, what is considered Palestine by international borders um, is, but it's under Israeli control. 
so it's so much easier for like um, you know the Israeli climbers to have access to that than it is for the Palestinian climbers, and then not to mention you know all the climbing all over Israel and just like moving about from Israel to these areas in the West Bank, even a lot of Israeli mm-hmm. climbers might not even be aware of. You know, like a lot of climbers tend to be more progressive, more educated. So I'm sure there's a lot of Israeli climbers that are well aware of like what's yeah. going on in Palestine, um, and you know would like to do something about that but it's like i'm sure their hands are pretty tied just like yeah i mean it's a terribly thorny issue and 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 you know uh, and and with that said you know we're talking about your experience and certainly and i'll i'm sure i'll hear about it but there's plenty there probably is plenty crossover on on individual levels and sympathy uh between the groups and um yeah, so I mean, I'm certainly not like we're not drawing this black and white line. We're just talking about your experience. Mm-hmm. I want to kind of put that caveat in there um, because I've you know I've met and know Israeli climbers that that you know don't harbor any sort of like deep political ire. It's part of part of their you know. It's just like I don't believe in everything that our goddamn government's doing. Yeah, either, especially today. Yeah, <laughs> right now. So um, yeah. So anyhow, I just was kind of curious if you'd had any sort of experiences with yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I feel like I can relate even more to the Israeli climbers than the Palestinian climbers is because my government is responsible for some terrible things. And, you know, they've spread their tentacles all over the world to different countries and affected all these different people. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to be associated with that. Like, I don't support that necessarily. And right. so I have to like consider that whenever I meet any Israeli, especially Israeli climbers that, you know, just because their government is responsible, like their government is separate from them. Right. So their government is mm-hmm. responsible for yeah. some ter- pretty terrible stuff, but they don't necessarily want anything to do with that. And they might like vehemently mm-hmm. disagree with what their government's doing. Yeah. As well, so, we have no yeah. idea. Um, and, and certainly Wadi Rum has that, you know, has Israeli climbers and guides down there that have certainly cross the cultural line in positive ways and things yeah. like that so since that 2017 initial one um your connections remained yeah my connections i mean i haven't been keeping in touch um lately as much as i would like to but uh, i did go back for another trip in 2019 and i organized like this little like climbing event in wadi rum for palestinian and jordanian climbers mostly to like come climb together and then i taught like a little trad lesson there because it's like how can i contribute and that's like about as mm-hmm. much as i could contribute so i helped or have with some other folks um in the area i helped organize this little event and yeah we had a really, really good time it's like cool to see everybody again and then i went like from there i climbed a little bit more in wadi rum and then went back to palestine again and i got to participate a little bit with like these programs that some of the Palestinian climbers were started were doing, um, taking like refugee kids out climbing to like the, the beginner areas, and um, and I think I even like did a little class with some of the like core group of climbers in Palestine. That's like a big thing there. Like they have this group called Wadi Climbing, and that's also the name of the climbing gym. And they will often do these trips where they take beginner climbers out and that's how like more people get into the sport and they're like really affordable um like little climbing trips that people will go on mostly i was just telling them my tricks for risk management because like Mm -hmm. i think um Mm -hmm. out of all the guiding i do like teaching beginners is one of the sketchiest you know because i'm teaching 
multiple people had to belay and it's their first time out climbing. And, you know, one guide sometimes with up to six people in those classes. And so I had to teach people how to belay each other. And I just like taught them some tricks like backup belayers and, you know, just being really like vigilant when people are lowering each other because that's kind of sketchy and like teaching people like how to stand at the crag so that they don't drop each other. But yeah, I mean, people always like think of like guiding beginners as like the easy part of the job, but it's actually like really stressful. <laughs> Especially if you're teaching people how to belay. If you're just like a belay monkey all day, that's right. not a big deal. But if yeah, if you're teaching people how to belay, it can be like there's a lot of potential for things to go wrong if you don't do it right. Yeah, yeah. So. so given given your kid the car keys exactly, or whatever yeah. for the first time. <laughs> Yeah, I noticed just this little blip that you actually went and guided in China um, at one point um, as well. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that? Because that seems like another great cultural leap to take, like going to Palestine in its own way. Yeah, so that was back in 2007, I think was my first trip to China. And oh, I wow. worked for this little company there called China Climb. They're pretty much like an outdoor education company. There's a lot of international schools in China. and um, they pretty much like took kids from those schools and did like an outdoor education like week and climbing is one of the activities that they would mm -hmm. do with kids there. And so I was that was kind of, I guess, my first climbing guiding job is just single pitch, oh, okay. like putting up uh, routes for these kids and belaying them. And that was I mean, that was a lot different than what I started doing later on when I started guiding for Yosemite Mountaineering School, because, you know, that was just like, you know, putting ropes up and belaying kids. Whereas working for Yosemite Mountaineering School, we're required by the Park Service to be educational service. And so, you know, mm -hmm. at the most basic level with them, I have to at least teach them, like, leave no trace, um, how to belay, how to become, like, little mini rock climbers versus where I was working in China was, like, um, just pretty much, like, introducing kids, like, just giving them a little taste of the sport. Sure. but. Are we talking about Western kids that are there? Some of them um, were. A lot kids. of them were Chinese kids. A lot of a lot of kids were from mm -hmm. other places in Asia. Um, a lot of kids. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot of um, American-born Chinese kids there. Who, Chinese kids were American, but had moved back because right. their parents like got a job in China. I guess foreigners in China, at least while I was there, their kids couldn't go to the public schools, so they had these like international schools in China for mm -hmm. for all the expats, all the people who were from other countries or had citizenship outside of China, or just parents with means um, would send their kids to these international schools, and that was like generally our clientele. But I was also I was working in that was in Yangshuo, China. So it's I don't know if you've been there. It's a pretty popular climbing area. No. I know, yeah, yeah. I know the pictures. Yeah, and stuff, sure. it's beautiful. So yeah, then we also did like on the weekends, sort of as like a side hustle. We would also just like guide foreigners who would come. Sure. But our staff was like half Chinese people, half foreigners, and so we had our kind of we had like a a big base of people because within China, it's like insanely popular to like travel within China. So we actually had a lot of like Chinese tourists coming through okay. that town, and so um, you know, like they would take. The Chinese people climbing and, you know, we would take, I would take, you know, the people who only spoke English climbing or the English speakers right. climbing for obvious reasons. What, uh, what was the experience like just on a personal level, you know, your sort of day to day being in China in a place yeah, like that? Yeah, it was kind of, for me, it was like a kind of a great gateway into traveling and 
being in different parts of the world because again, like I had no money and working for that company, they sort of like took care of me a little bit. Like they gave me a place to live. They would feed us dinners um, every night and we got free beer. So that was like the deal working for them. We got paid like a small amount. We got free place to live and beer and dinner. And um, so I could like pretty much live there without like having much dinner. money. And I just wanted to pay for my plane ticket right. over there. You could get drunk yeah. for free. Well, it's hard to get Climbers drunk dream. off of Chinese beer. I'm not going to lie. Chinese beer, yeah, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> pretty watered down. But we did it. Yeah. <laughs> we managed to do it. I sometimes. imagine. That's I, I lived, uh, you know, in Alta, Utah. And everybody not from there was like, how do you get drunk on 3 2? I'm like, Dude, you can get super drunk. Except <laughs> to like not eat anything all day, anyway. and go climbing all day, and then drink right. like chug a beer, and then maybe yeah. stand up and sit down a bunch yeah. of times. Like, yeah. Anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, overall, it must have been a pretty wild cultural experience. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, I was we were like half foreigners, half Chinese people, but like. Yeah, I was hanging out with other Americans there. I wouldn't say that I was just mm-hmm. like immersed in Chinese culture. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, like like we talked about earlier, just being in an area for an amount of time, you make a little bit like more connections with people. You get to know people who are locals to the area um, mm-hmm. a little bit more than you would just like passing through, even just for a climbing trip. Because that, that trip, I was there for like four months or something. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, going back to like maybe ram this point home, but you know, even like going and buying your whatever from the same person every day, mm-hmm. you know, which you tend to do in those towns, like you know, even again, like in Catalonia, like I always joke that I finally like, you know, broke through the lady who was selling me Hamon's like, you know, burly Catalonian exterior, <laughs> um, but it took like four weeks, yeah. you know. <laughs> To get like a smile out of her, like a acknowledgement that I existed, even though I'd bought ham on from her for like, <laughs> you know, weeks on end. Yeah. Um, but it's funny because in like in Mexico too, I remember those feelings of like, you show up at the same stall to get some fruit from the same lady and pretty soon she's like, hey, and we're talking, you know, as, as best we can or whatever. Mm-hmm. So um, it's pretty funny like that. I'd imagine, you know, China's kind of a similar vibe. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, we've talked a lot about your guiding, uh, what you've done for sort of other people. Let me ask you a question, and you can think about this for a minute because it's going to be a little bit out of the blue and, and weird. But, you know, I've got all these like lists of things that you've done as a climber. We didn't really get into, you know, that amazing feat of rope soloing um, El Cap in, in 21 hours or, or whatever it ended up being, um, you know, setting the women's record for that. Um, if that's important to you. And I've got some other stuff, you know, Patagonia first ascents and things like that. So can you think of, and, and maybe, you know, we'll finish by just talking about, um, you know, a, a day or a trip or uh, an experience or even accomplishment that that's like the one you like to tell, like that you, you actually are willing to kind of spray about a little bit. That was, you know, even if it wasn't the hardest thing you did, like an experience, and maybe it was the nose, maybe we could, could talk about that. Um, but what pops to your mind of like, that's a moment I was like, I, I'm a climber. This is, this is real. This is what I love to do. And everyone always wants to know about the nose. Cause it was like mm-hmm. a first, I guess, um, sort of, I was like the first woman to solo the nose in less than 24 hours. But I think like for me, the, that was like a natural progression. Like I, I know it's like not a super, super common, um, thing that people do, but given the community that I was in at the time or am in, it made a lot of sense. And there's kind of 
quite a few people, a lot, a few, a few of my friends, a few of my coworkers who've done it. And so it just did, it didn't seem that like uh, crazy to me at the time. I think one of my biggest accomplishments as far as like having to use all my skills that I've ever learned rock climbing would have been like freeing uh, the free rider. And it's like kind of cliche, okay. you know, cause like now everyone's done the free rider, but um, I feel like <laughs> um, especially at the time, I just felt like, you know, I'm, Using every skill I've never I've heard ever of it. learned. I, I don't. Yeah, <laughs> I know what you're talking. Is that is that like in El Dorado? Do that without a rope. It should be that hard, right? <laughs> anyway, I interrupted. But yeah, let, talk a little bit about that. That's fine. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's, I guess it's like a lot of people probably have like a similar story, but just like yeah, just like being able to use all my skills as a climber, and then you know, I never like uh, free climbed anything on LCAT before, obviously. So normally like, we're just like totally different style of climbing while you're up there. And so just like Mm -hmm. learning the ways free climb on a big wall rather than just, you know, jumaring and aid climbing. And then, you know, it's like the higher you got is like, the more um, scared you were that like, you were going to fuck it up and not send the route. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, just like um, and like emotionally, it was like pretty hard, and mentally, because like once I got like a bit higher, and I was actually like, oh, I could do this. Then I was like, had this like not like fear of falling, um, because at that point my head was pretty good. I wasn't afraid of like leading above my gear at all, but definitely the fear of like failing, I guess, um, was like emotionally taxing (laughs) towards the top, and sure, um. Yeah, I just feel like I had to like overcome all these different things I had never really had to deal with, like on shoulder climbs or on, you know, just like aid climbing bigger routes. What was the style that you did it in? Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say we had the best style because we wrapped in and stashed some water and cans of Mm -hmm. food higher up. And a lot of times when I've like tried to like cheat my way through things, it's kind of backfired on me. So we were like, okay, well, we'll rehearse the moves and dash some water and stuff like that and then of course like mm-hmm. it was too crowded we couldn't rehearse any moves and a lot of the water was gone so <laughs> not all of it we still had water and we had like cans of food that we had stashed but um like on the nose too i i stashed some water but it was gone by the time i got up there so <laughs> like try to cheat but it, didn't, well, it kind of backfired <laughs> is there some is there some i mean i always we always used to date ours is there some like protocol yeah, to we get did, people but to you know i mean if your you're water. thirsty you're thirsty i've been there you know right if you're really thirsty you can't blame <laughs> someone for drinking your water there's water up there and you're gonna drink like if you're about to die of thirst like i mean not right. die, maybe not die but right well really that's the question isn't it how thirsty were they actually Hopefully, i think they were pretty um, thirsty it was hot up there yeah but it didn't it didn't shut you down. No, yeah, we had just enough water. And it's actually, you know, for anybody right. who's interested in trying the free rider and like wrapping in, it's so much work to like go to the top, fill your jugs at the spring, rappel down. Like it's so much work. I would say it's almost not worth it. Like maybe just barely worth it. Something to yeah, factor I feel the in same for way. those folks who are like, oh yeah, yeah. we're just going to make it easier. It's like a lot. It's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't necessarily. How long were you up there on the ascent? And did you just have to try it? Uh, once? That was my second time trying it. And we were up there. I think the okay. first time I was up there almost seven days. I was up there like six days or something. And then the second time, it was only like five days, I think. Have you had since then um, other other uh, 
free free climbing El Cap goals? Well, I always wanted to go back and do that in a day. And I guess that would still be like my main goal. The other thing I was thinking, just because it looks so awesome, is the Salafé, the head wall of the Salafé. <laughs> I right. really wish it would do right. like the free rider, but then the Salafé head wall, I think would be amazing um, just because it looks so mm-hmm. cool. And then... I mean, all the free routes on El Cap look amazing, you know, like the heart or like the El Corazon and the Muir Wall. Now I yeah, know how to do maybe it not in the two next... to one, so. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe not in the next couple yeah. of years anyway. You might have something else going on. If I'm lucky, I'll get to train. <laughs> and then we'll see. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Alrighty, folks, thanks for listening and thanks to Miranda for getting that done. Once again, if you want to find out more about Miranda, especially what she's doing professionally, you can go to MirandaOakley.com and uh, see what she's got going. Maybe you can find her in Yosemite on the east side and take a course once she's back on her feet from her next challenge, bringing forth a human life. Speaking of human life, watch out for your own human life out there when you're climbing. Of course, be safe, have fun, and check your knots. If you can uh, get people to consent to the state of affairs in which they are living, the state of servitude, the state of being, well, it seems to me that the, the nature of the ultimate revolution with which we are now faced is precisely this, uh, that we are in process of developing a whole series of techniques which uh, will enable the controlling oligarchy, who have always existed and presumably always will exist uh, to get people actually to love their servitude. Uh, People can be made to enjoy a state of affairs which by any decent standard they ought not to enjoy. (laughs) 